Good morning, friends. Today's message, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. Now, that's a huge topic, so we will confine ourselves to the events surrounding the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. As we study this story in Luke chapter 3, I want you to keep in mind that Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man and the model you and I should follow. Now, in order to fully understand what happened in the wilderness, we need to start before the temptation and continue after the temptation. Our focus will not be on the devil, but on the Holy Spirit and the role he played in the life of Jesus before, during, and after the temptation. And to do so, we're going to look at five words that summarize what happened. Now, word number one is obedience. Our story begins in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, with an act of obedience. Luke tells us that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was being baptized too. Matthew three thirteen to 15 tells us that his baptism was an act of righteousness. He fulfilled the Father's will by identifying himself with the nation of Israel. And by submitting to baptism, even though he had no sins to confess, he took a step of obedience that said, I'm one with you. Now, here's our second word, and that is assurance. When Jesus was being baptized, two extraordinary things happened. First of all, the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And second, the Father spoke from heaven with the words of approval. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, there you go. The entire Trinity is revealed here. Jesus as the Son of God, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and the voice of the Father. What greater assurance could there be that Jesus was and is truly the Messiah? Now, word number three is testing. Now, immediately following the story of the baptism, Luke inserts a rather lengthy genealogy that starts with Jesus and goes back to Adam, the Son of God. That's in verse 38. But then we come to the story of the temptation in Luke 4, 1 to 11. So the order in Luke's gospel looks like this. Baptism, genealogy, temptation. Now Luke inserts the genealogy because he wants to demonstrate that where Adam failed in his great test in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 1 to 6, Jesus will now decisively defeat the devil. The first Adam failed The second Adam succeeded. The one true Son of God will now square off against the archenemy of the universe. And as the text reveals, it won't be a fair fight. Jesus utterly defeats the devil at every turn. Now, there's the fourth word, and that is power. After the time of testing is over, Luke 4.14 tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, as news about him spread from town to town, verse 15 says, everyone praised him. Now, however you wish to explain it, something happened to Jesus in the wilderness. He, was not, he not only defeated the devil, he returned from his victory in the power of the Spirit. Now, verse, word five is freedom. He now goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath in his hometown of Nazareth. And standing up, he opens up the scroll and he starts to read from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me. And then after finishing, he makes a rather audacious but true claim in verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, at first, they loved his gracious words in verse 21, 
But later they tried to throw him off a cliff in verse 29. Now from Nazareth he went to Capernaum on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And when he spoke on the Sabbath to the people, he said they, or when he spoke, it says they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Now, I thought about what word to use for this final step in the story, and I couldn't quite make up my mind. The word boldness came to mind, as did the word certainty. But I finally settled on the word freedom because it seemed to encapsulate the fullness of Jesus' ministry. Because he is moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's completely free to speak the truth with boldness and without fear of what people might do to him. So just stand back and look at the sequence for a moment and think about that in your own life. Obedience, assurance, testing, power, and freedom. Now Luke makes it clear that these things happen in a certain order because Jesus is modeling for us what it means to live in close connection to God. He obeys and the Spirit descends. The Father speaks words of assurance. Immediately he's led into the wilderness. He comes out of that ordeal with the power of the Spirit. His freedom to speak the truth with authority endears him with some people and enrages other people. So let's focus for a moment on his temptation. Luke 4.1 mentions the Holy Spirit twice. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. Now the word led has the idea of being led by the hand. In a parallel passage in Mark Mark 1, verse 12, there's a different Greek word it's used, which means to drive, which is why some translations say that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. That doesn't mean that Jesus went unwillingly, he had to be drug in there, but it does indicate that this showdown with the devil did not happen by accident. Now, we ought to think of it this way. The Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness, through the wilderness, and out of the wilderness. There was never a moment when he left Jesus. Even in his weakened condition physically, Jesus had the Holy Spirit upon him as he faced the devil. Now, this conclusively refutes two wrong assumptions often made about the temptation of Jesus. Now, wrong assumption number one is this, that Jesus agonized greatly over the temptations of the devil. But you know something? The text doesn't read that way. The devil tempted him, and Jesus immediately defeated him, each time with the word of God. Jesus experienced true agony much later in the Garden of Gethsemane as he contemplated the cost of bearing the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Now, that was true agony. The wilderness was true temptation, but Jesus didn't agonize. It was as if he said to the devil, come on, buddy, hit me with your best shot. And is that all you got? Though physically depleted by 40 days of fasting, he brushed the devil aside every time. Now, there's wrong assumption number two, that the devil was in control of the whole situation. But the context makes it clear that the Spirit intentionally led Jesus into the wilderness in order to do battle with the devil. And so Jesus did not shrink back from this desert warfare, nor do I believe the devil welcomed it. See, he prefers to work behind the scenes through secondary causes. By going into the desert, Jesus flushed out his adversary and made him fight like a man. And thus exposed, the devil was easily defeated by the Son of God. Now, I want you to take a moment to compare verse 1 with verse 14. Jesus was full of the Spirit when he went into the desert, and Jesus came out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. See, something happened to Jesus as a result of his victory over the devil. The Holy Spirit's power became evident and obvious in his life in a new way. And in thinking about this, it helps to remember that Jesus was truly human. 
If Jesus as a man could grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, then as a man he could grow in his experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, I freely admit that this is kind of a mystery that's really difficult to understand, but Luke wants us to know that Jesus went into the desert full of the Spirit, came out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. Both before and after, he was fully possessed by the Spirit, fully led by the Spirit. But having defeated the devil, the Spirit's power became very pronounced in his life. It's the difference between uh, truth understood and truth expressed. As a man, his life had new impact upon people. It says they all praised him after his victory over the devil. But should this surprise us? Now, what's that got to do with you and me? Well, is not this our experience as well? When we face temptation successfully, when we refuse to lower our standards, when we say no to sin and yes to righteousness, when we refrain from those evil words that we're sometimes tempted to say, after we pass through a fiery trial, do we not come out of that experience with new confidence? Well, that leads me to a crucial principle we all need to learn. God uses temptation to release spiritual power in your life. Now, Martin Luther once remarked that in making a minister of God, three things are required. And I want you to know we're all called to be ministers. But he says three things are required. Meditation, prayer, temptation. That's kind of interesting. Meditation, prayer, temptation. Now, the first refers to the meditation on the Word of God. The second is self-evident. But what does he mean by temptation? Does he mean we should go around looking for the devil to pick a fight with him? No, but neither should we run from our spiritual battles. No one can ever grow spiritually without facing strong temptations. Now, I'm using the word temptation as synonymous with trial because the Greek word can be translated in both ways. Temptation to most of us means a solicitation to do evil. But any trial can become a temptation if we give in to our anger, if we lose our temper, if we break our promise, if we compromise our values, if we trade in our integrity, if we hide like cowards instead of standing up for what we believe, or just if we just get be very cranky with people and we start condemning people. Now, you could say it this way. The same event will often be both a temptation and a trial. What God gives to us as a trial or a test, Satan almost always uses as a temptation. The very same event may be both a trial and a test to you and also a temptation from Satan. God uses it to accomplish one thing in your life, and Satan at the very same time is working through the event to try to accomplish something diametrically opposite. See, very often God allows a trial to come for a positive purpose, but Satan tries to co-opt it, if you will, for his own evil reasons. The temptation of Jesus offers a clear example of this principle. We know that the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness, tempting him to turn away from the path of obedience to his heavenly father. Luke 4, 1 tells us that Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. So who's doing the leading? It's the Holy Spirit. Who did the tempting? It was the devil. Now, is there a contradiction here? I mean, did God know what was going to happen when he sent his son to the desert? Yeah, he did. He intended to demonstrate that his son would not yield to Satan's temptations. Was God tempting his own son? No, he wasn't. Was God putting his son in a place where his son could be tempted by the devil? Well, the answer to that must be yes. And, you know, so that's kind of an amazing thought. And at this point, we need to think carefully and clearly. I do not believe that God ever directly solicits his children to sin. I don't believe that because 
the Bible specifically denies it. But it is also true that at times God allows his children to go into a place where they will face severe temptations from Satan. Is God responsible for the temptation? No, he's not. He just does the leading. Satan does the tempting. From God's point of view, it's a test. From Satan's point of view, it's a temptation. Now, we see this in every area of our life. God sends a trial. Satan turns it into a temptation. Let's suppose a child of God gets sick. I mean, could that sickness be a testing from God? Yeah, it could be. It's almost always a testing from God to purify motives, to cause that person to look away from the things of the earth to the things of heaven, to turn the eyes of the child of God back to the Lord. And a lot of good things are accomplished through sickness in the life of the believer. Now, does Satan work through sickness? Yes. And through that very same sickness, Satan will be working to tempt you, tempt you to despair, to, to anger, to bitterness, to ultimately turn away from the Lord. But what God intends for spiritual good, Satan uses to pull you down. Or let's say you lose your job. Now, you could say, could that be from God? Well, yeah, it could. If you lose your job, could God have a, if you lose your job, could God have a better purpose in mind for you? Yes, and he often does. He may bring a better job. He certainly wants to build some spiritual character in your life. You, you may have fallen in love with the things of the world to the point where the good things have become an idol to you. In that case, it's maybe good for you to lose a job. And during that trial from God, Satan will tempt you to anger and despair and discouragement. Or it works the other way as well. Let's suppose you get a promotion, you get a nice raise. Now you're better off financially than ever before. Can a promotion be a trial? Well, sure it could. Because prosperity is often a testing from God to see how you'll handle his blessings. Prosperity ought to make us more generous toward the needy. Having more ought to open our eyes to those who have less than we do. But that same prosperity often makes us greedy or selfish or blind to the less fortunate. There are just a few examples. These are just a few examples of how something God intends as a means of building you up is also used by Satan as a means of temptation to pull you down. Now, I'm going to draw two conclusions from that fact. Here's conclusion number one. Testing and trials are a normal part of the Christ follower's life. He puts difficult choices in front of every one of us every day so that by following him and by trusting him in those circumstances, we become stronger. Our, our faith becomes confirmed and we become an example to other people of victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there's nothing you can do to escape the trials of life. I mean, in the school of grace, God does not offer a no-trials degree program. All of us will be tested many, many times in many, many ways. Now, conclusion number two. A trial becomes a temptation when we respond wrongly. That which was sent into our life in order to make us stronger is that which actually tears us down and makes us weaker when we respond in the power of the flesh. What God means for good, Satan means for evil. The Christian hangs in the balance between the test of the trials from the Heavenly Father and the perversions of Satan as he twists that which God gives us and whispers in our ear, Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, you can say it, you can do it, you can feel that way. Now, could this be the reason why the biblical writers did not sharply distinguish between what we want to keep separate? See, we separate trials and temptations as if they were far, far apart. I think the biblical writers had no problem using the same word to mean trials in one verse and then using the very same word to mean temptation just a few verses later. They understood what we have forgotten. Everything good comes from God, 
and everything he gives us is ultimately for our good and his glory. He does not sin, nor does he solicit us to sin. But hidden inside every trial is the seed of a temptation that Satan uses to harvest a crop of evil in our lives. If Jesus was the Son of God, and he, he is, why did the Father put him in the position of being tempted by the devil? Well, consider the sequence. He was led that he might be tested. He was tested that he might be prepared. He was prepared that he might be empowered. The same thing happens to you and me. From the high point of his baptism, Jesus was led into the desert of temptation. And God never intends that we stay on the mountaintop of spiritual ecstasy, if you will. Mountaintops are exciting places. I mean, from the mountaintop, you see vast distances. On the mountaintop, you feel the fresh air blowing in your face. On the mountaintop, you don't have any worries. It's a place of joy and fulfillment and certainty and a place of spiritual refreshment. And you know something? Sometimes a worship service can be a spiritual mountaintop for us. Kind of a moment of victory in our lives. And thank God for those mountaintops. If we didn't have them, man, life would, would really be almost unbearable. But sooner or later, you got to go down from the mountaintop into the valley of trouble where the people are and where life needs to be lived. That's where you face your problems to learn to look to God for solutions. That's where you prove the reality of your faith before a watching world. You have to go down into the valley because that's where the desert is. And the desert is where the Holy Spirit will lead you sooner or later. And if you try to stay on that mountaintop too long, the Spirit will gently take you by your hand and lead you down into the valley into the wilderness of temptation. And if he can't gently lead you, he'll get behind you, maybe give you a good swift kick, and you'll slide off that mountain and go tumbling down to the valley. See, mountaintops are fun, but we can't stay there forever. We've all got to go down into the wilderness sooner or later. The Spirit himself will lead us there. And most of us will go back to the wilderness many times, and that's a truth learned the hard way. I think a few Christians spend so much time there that they feel like they've earned a wilderness merit badge. But we'll all spend some time in the wilderness whether we like it or not. There's no, there is no other path to spiritual power. So what do we do if you find yourself in the wilderness? Well, remember these three truths. One, you're not there by accident. Two, you're not there alone. And three, you will not be there forever. When God's purposes in your life have been accomplished, the Spirit will lead you out of the wilderness and you will come out stronger in your faith than when you went in. Now, it was necessary for Jesus to go into the wilderness. It's necessary for us too. I want you to think of it this way. The wilderness is not a fun place to be. You always end up feeling alone and exhausted. You may not fast for 40 days, but you will often come to the end of all human resources. And you will feel like giving in and giving up. You will wonder why God has abandoned you. Nothing will make sense. All will seem confusing, but do not despair. Stand your ground. Remember the promises of God. Cling to the Lord. Don't turn back to the old way of life. Don't give in to your emotions. Lean on brothers and sisters in Christ. See, God never leads us in the wilderness in order to destroy us. He intends the time of testing to make us stronger. Think of what you find in the desert. Victory is here. Holiness is here. Spiritual growth is here. The Holy Spirit is here. Jesus is here. And as odd as it may seem to us, when we are most filled with the Spirit, we are most likely to be led in this wilderness. So stand your ground. Remember that life is all about God. It's not all about you. Your wilderness is not about you. It's all about God. Your temptations are not about you. They're all about God. Your spiritual journey isn't, all, isn't about you. It's all about God. 
Life isn't about your dreams or your agenda or your hopes or your ideas or your plans. Life is all about God's dreams and God's agenda and God's ideas and God's plan. It's his kingdom we're praying to come, not ours. So friends, stand strong in the moment of temptation, trusting that God will give you what you need when you need it. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.